Hey there, McConaughey here. And I want to let you in on a little something. Master distiller Eddie Russell and I have created a new small batch bourbon, Wild Turkey Long Branch, refined with Texas mesquite charcoal for a smoky sweetness. It is my favorite bourbon on the planet. Wild Turkey Long Branch, real bourbon, no apologies. Wild Turkey Long Branch, Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. 43% alcohol by volume. Campari America, New York, New York. Never compromise. Drink responsibly. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie. And with me today are two co-hosts. Allie is here as usual. Hi, Allie. Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm pretty good. And joining us for one night only is Nina, the host of the Already Gone podcast. Hi, Nina. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Allie. How are you? Hello. Uh, I'm well, thank you. I'm excited to be recording with you tonight. I'm hoping that our listeners appreciate your calm, soothing voice as opposed to our (laughs) usual louder voices. You can hear me okay, right? Oh, yeah. I'm sure it's fine. Yes. Oh, good. Okay. It's kind of funny because as we are recording this, Nina and I have not been to the Generation Y meetup yet, and so we haven't actually met. Not yet. But when this releases, we will have already met. So I both look forward to meeting you, and I'm sure it was also nice to meet you. Likewise. Tonight we're going to talk about Mikkel Biggs, a Mesa, Arizona girl who went missing in January of 1999. She's not been seen since that day, and there has never been any trace of her. Tonight's episode came to us from Lorraine, so thank you for the suggestion, Lorraine. And thank you to Mikkel's sister, Kimber, who answered some of my more specific questions we had during researching. So let's go ahead and start with the family makeup of Mikkel's family. Mikkel was 11 years old, and she lived with her mom, dad, and three younger siblings. The sister closest to her in age is Kimber, and she was nine at the time of the disappearance. She was also the last person to see Mikkel. So on Saturday, January 2nd, 1999, Mikkel and Kimber were playing and heard the ice cream truck music off in the distance. So while Allie is used to January 2nd being warm enough for ice cream... Uh, I'm from Connecticut, and Nina, being from Michigan, this is kind of a foreign concept. (laughs) Yes. Ice cream in January, but this is Mesa, so it wasn't entirely out of the question that there would be an ice cream man around. So, So though, as the sun started setting, it did start getting chilly. A later investigation indicated that it's possible that there were no ice cream trucks in the area. They couldn't find any, yet both girls said they heard the music. No other neighbors reported hearing the music. So there are kind of two theories here, but I mean, we'll talk about one later, but it is possible, I suppose, that one girl thought she heard the music and kind of convinced the other one, you know, that power of suggestion kind of thing. Yes. So regardless, they both believed it enough to stand at the corner with quarters. And the corner from their house is about four houses down. I don't know. It's not even 300 feet. So I always thought that was a strange part that if around where I live, if an ice cream truck is going around, there is a bunch of kids waiting, not just two. So I always thought that was a strange part 
if it was an ice cream truck, why was only two children there? Well, wasn't there a big football game going on and it was dark or getting dark at 6.30, so maybe people weren't letting their kids out? Is that a possibility? That's a good point. You know, everyone else's kids may have been inside watching the game. I know I live in a neighborhood with very few other children, so ice cream men generally don't even bother coming down our street. So Same here. (laughs) So if their neighborhood maybe didn't have as many kids, though it looks like a pretty solidly family neighborhood. I got the impression it was full of families. I did too. They were waiting, and they actually had Kimber's bike, and Kimber had taken the family dog with her as well, and Kimber started to get cold. So at about 5.50 p.m., she went home with the dog to grab a coat, leaving Mikkel and her bike at that corner. While she was home, her mom told her, you know, dinner's nearly ready. Just go get Mikkel and come in. The ice cream man's not coming. When Kimber went outside, she looked down to the corner and called for Mikkel, but Mikkel was gone. The bike and the quarters were found on the ground a bit back from the corner, kind of back towards their house in front of a neighbor's privacy wall. And so we can go ahead and that is kind of the background and the setup of the event. And after Kimber saw the bike and went inside and told her mom that she wasn't there, they checked quick with a neighbor where they thought maybe she went to the neighbor's house and then they called the police right away. So police respond immediately and within 30 minutes they begin searching the neighborhood for Mikkel with the help from the neighbors. A helicopter is also dispatched in the air with a loudspeaker announcing that a child was missing. Police dogs pick up Mikkel's scent, but they lose it within a few feet right on the sidewalk, leading investigators to believe she was placed in a vehicle and driven away. The only signs of Mikkel were left on that sidewalk. Her scent, her bicycle and the two quarters were all that investigators had to work with. Neighbours' homes were searched with consent, and again, nothing showed up. One neighbour did refuse a search, but when the investigators looked into that person a bit further, he was ruled out as a suspect. Alleys and dumpsters were also searched that night. I saw one uh, a interview with a neighbour who said he was walking through an alley with Mikkel's dad, opening dumpsters and looking in. That's so sad. And how horrible. Just that they were already kind of thinking along those lines right away, just looking for her. I also, it always makes me wonder why people, now I understand why you would refuse a search, even if you have nothing to hide, just, you know, asserting your rights. But if you do have something to hide, that just makes them look at you more. (laughs) Yeah. If you have a fetish room or you have a pot farm, you know, or something questionable, but not necessarily illegal, people talk. You may not want those things to get out. Yeah, and I mean, it gives you a little bit of time before the police come back with a warrant to get in to hide, you know, a couple of joints or whatever it is that you you don't want them to see. So, I I mean, I never question anybody asserting their rights. I just think if you want to avoid suspicion, that's not the way to do it. Agreed. So the next day, the police had Kimber reenact her actions from that night before to kind of set up a time frame for how long Mikkel was outside alone. The reenactment involved Kimber walking from the corner back to her house, going inside, having a little chat with her mom about dinner, and going back outside to look down the street. They did a repeated walkthroughs, and the police set the timeline as as few as 90 seconds, but as much as 120 seconds. 
but they said definitely under two minutes. So we had some discussion on this. I mean, this sounds really fast. Uh, little kids, they I mean, they make stops along the way. They kick a pebble down the street that they're not going to remember doing the next day. I don't know how reliable this timeline is. I had my daughter do a similar walkthrough. I know this sounds so bizarre, but... And I mapped and I did a little bit of math. And I can see it as possible, but if Kimber was just walking with purpose back home. But I think it's unlikely. Children don't walk with purpose at this age. They get easily distracted by the environment around them. And she did have a dog and the dog would have stopped and started, I would imagine. And when Kimber gets home, I'd be very surprised if the conversation was just, where's Mikkel? Still there? Go back and get her. Okay. And then she goes straight back. Knowing how children are at that age, there would have been stomping and dragging heels because she obviously didn't want to go back out there. And that's normal for that age. This time frame doesn't allow for anything except for constant movement. Right. Yeah. She would have had to leave on, you know, zero and then just move and move. Exactly. I do think being that she was cold, I guess it's possible she maybe walked a little faster if she, but if they're waiting for an ice cream man, it couldn't have been that cold. I don't know. My other thought on that is being a dog owner, if the dog had dinner when the people had dinner, the dog may have been like, let's go home right now because dinner. Good point. I do think while that sounds like a really tight time frame, it's possible, but I really do think that regardless, Mikkel was probably taken very quickly because when Kimber went outside, she reports that the bike tire on the ground was still spinning. Even if she'd been out there for five minutes, I really think it looks like she was taken very closely to when Kimber went out there. However, not closely enough that Kimber saw anything. It also makes me wonder, even if this was a little bit longer of a time frame, say three minutes, even four minutes, it kind of makes me wonder, do you guys think it would have been likely it was someone who just happened to drive by and found a girl outside alone? Or do you think Mikkel and Kimber maybe were being watched? And as soon as one was separated from the other, the abductor jumped in. I'll get into it more when we get into theories, but I do believe that Mikkel would have been being watched. And I think she would have been watched for some time, which makes me believe that it was a local that had taken her. It just It's too short of a time frame, even if it was a minute or five minutes. It's a very short time frame to grab Mikkel. Well, and I wonder... Uh, in thinking about the time frame, if there were two people in the vehicle, because I can't imagine parking the car, getting out, grabbing the little girl who's struggling, pulling her into the car, subduing her, putting the car back in gear, and not squealing the tires in order to disappear in that 90-second, two-minute time frame. Well, exactly. She would have struggled. She would have been, I assume that she would have screamed and no one heard anything. That's, you'd have to do it very quickly. I just can't see one person pulling it off and driving away. Right. And Kimber saw no car. There, right. She didn't see her. She didn't even remember hearing a car driving down the road. Now, because of the way the corner is, it is possible the person could have driven on that T road, not necessarily their street. However, right. you would still think it's still only four houses down. It's It had to have been so fast for Kimber not to have seen or heard anything. All known sex offenders in the area were investigated. Offender registries can be really helpful as long as you remember that they, 
only show you the people who got caught. However, everyone that was on the list was investigated and more or less cleared, though we will come back to one of these people later. Hundreds of volunteers joined the police in these early days searching the deserts, lakes, and mine shafts looking for Mikkel. The police even followed multiple leads from psychics. At least one led them out to the desert where they dug, and they dug where he said to dig. It wasn't necessarily that police believed the conflicting psychic reports, but they never knew when someone's psychic vision was really a front to give information to the police that they may not have wanted to give otherwise. Police followed up on thousands and thousands of tips. So like we said, there were no witnesses to Mikkel's disappearance. There were no other children around. Kimber didn't see anything. Neighbors were inside watching football. But you will see two sketches of suspects. Neither of these were widely widely circulated because they both came from incidents that may or may not have been connected to Mikkel's. So one of the sketches, which we'll post, is linked to an attempted molestation in the area. About two miles from where Mikkel lived, a girl about her same age reported being grabbed and groped by a man. She fought and yelled, and he took off. And this happened at some point before Mikkel's abduction, and this man has never been identified or found. The other sketch, I can't figure out where it came from. You'll see it on the Charlie Project page for Mikkel, and I asked Kimber, and she wasn't sure either. It does, for the record, resemble the sketch of a man wanted in connection with the murder of one girl and the disappearance of another that we'll talk about when we talk about some other cases tonight. However, it's not the same sketch, so I'm not sure where this other one came from. And I couldn't find anywhere that Mikkel's disappearance was linked to those girls anyway, so I'm not sure why the sketch would be there if it is the sketch related to the other girls. Right. Exactly. I can't figure out this other sketch. And like I said, Kimber didn't know where it came from either. So the bicycle is really the only physical link left here, and it is still in evidence and it is being kept secure and covered. It has been swabbed, and the hope is one day that forensic technology will advance in ways that this potential evidence could be recovered. Fingerprints and DNA have been processed, but they're holding on to the bike in the event it'll bring further information at some point. At least one of the police officers really thinks it's the key to solving what happened. There's a really beautiful picture in one of the newspaper articles of the bike sort of backlit, and the detective is standing over it, and it's just a really powerful image. These police officers who are working on these cold cases, they're really keeping watch and protection over these cases and the evidence. And I think that picture is the perfect metaphor for that. Oh, definitely. Agreed. So we have an early suspect, and not surprisingly, it's a family member. Mikkel's father, Darren, became a suspect pretty early on because it was discovered that the alibi he gave was false. So, of course, this is a red flag. He said he was at work when he was actually at a friend's house. But we need to remember that not everyone who lies in the course of an investigation is lying because they're guilty of that crime. So I didn't ask Kimber for the details of her father's alibi or her parents' marriage, but I'm sure we can all kind of rattle off a number of reasons he may have lied about being with a friend. I mean, the friend may have been someone his wife didn't like. It could have been this friend wasn't a male. He could have just been playing hooky at work. 
and didn't want his family to know. He got paid hourly, so it would have been a financial burden. I mean, there are reasons other than that he was kidnapping his own daughter. However, with a false alibi, the police did interrogate him and they gave him a polygraph test. And then he failed that polygraph test. So now here we are, too deep in suspicion. But I think we need to talk about the polygraphs for a second. So when people lie, they have certain physiological changes. Heart rate, blood pressure, those kind of things. The polygraph tests, when interpreted by an experienced and skilled expert, can detect these changes and also determine whether or not they indicate deception. This isn't something a computer can do. A person who's trained needs to be able to evaluate this. Polygraphs are entirely dependent on the skill of the interpreter, as well as dependent on this idea that we can measure human emotion and then assign a motive to it. It's accepted generally that polygraphs are about 80% reliable. However, some of the studies used to prove that have been called into question. So maybe one day when we want to bore everyone, we'll get into a complete episode about polygraphs. But an accepted truth about lie detectors is that they can't tell the difference between increased stress from lying or from any other issue, such as growing anger. It's up to the examiner to do that and nullify the results that he or she feels are inaccurate. And according to Darren, he failed his polygraph, likely because he was angry, and his anger built as they kept questioning him about his possible involvement in the kidnapping of his daughter. And that's understandable. He's been made feel or seem guilty, and he, all he thinks is, why aren't you looking for my daughter? Why aren't you trying to find who took my daughter? I would have been angry as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't consider myself a quick-to-anger person, but I'm pretty sure I would have gotten angry that they were looking at me if I knew I didn't do it. Exactly. And I would want them to find my child. And I watched an interview with him, and he seems like a tightly wound guy. So this wouldn't surprise me. But false alibi and failed polygraph aside, people have been convicted on less of this. However, he was cleared as a suspect. And there are some pretty good reasons why. I mean, let's think about why would he have kidnapped his own daughter from a corner? If he had wanted to do something terrible to her, he had full access 24 hours a day. And he wouldn't have had to work in such a tight window when people may have been looking. She would not have run from her father. Exactly. Hop in the car, Mikkel, would have been all he would have had to say. You know, she wouldn't. She would have kept her money in her hand and maybe put the bike up against the wall and got in the car. Exactly. And to fake this kind of scene would have required Kimber and their mother's cooperation and probably even more time. And that certainly did not happen. Oh, it was a very tight window. And the timeline doesn't work. The police did the drive from the friend's house where he was to the site, factored in the time that it would have taken him to hide Mikkel and get back in time to search with people. And it just, it simply didn't work. It kind of, it took, it sounded like a year before they officially cleared him. And I feel they made the right decision. And I think he's lucky he wasn't charged. People have been convicted on less than what he had. Darren has been now cleared in spite of the alibi issues and the failed polygraph. And I think, as you said, Charlie, that's rare. And, you know, it would have been a relief for the family too, because 
We have seen throughout the past few months of doing this podcast, persons of interest can be pursued relentlessly with fewer suspicions and you know they, they turn out to be innocent later. The FBI has developed a profile of the kidnapper and though they haven't released that profile to the general public, I'm only bringing it up here today to show you yet another investigative tactic that the investigators used. So Darren Biggs receives an email either through his personal email or through a web page that the family had set up to find Mikkel. Both of these scenarios are reported, but I don't think it's important to the story either way. Just that Darren did receive electronically a message, so it could have been, so it could be traced. The author of the message claimed to be holding Mikkel for ransom. Now, police put a lot of resources into tracking down who sent this message. Obviously, because there was every chance in the world that this person could have had Mikkel. The message was eventually tracked down to a location in Phoenix, which is about 20 miles or so away from the Biggs' family home. The investigators organised a SWAT team and there was also aerial surveillance set up. It ultimately turned out to be a 12-year-old kid just playing a prank. Oh, my kid would be in so much... I can't even tell you. My first thought, I have a 12-year-old. I don't think he would do something like this, but they are impulsive and they think stupid stuff is funny. I, but, oh my gosh, I would be so livid. And this wasn't the only false leads in Mikkel's case. As we saw with the Beaumont children and as what Nina said earlier, the psychics came in far and wide to give their opinion of what happened to Mikkel. Two witnesses were put under hypnosis in hopes that they would remember something. And a copper-coloured car was reported to be spotted near Mikkel's home at the time she was last seen. But when the driver was located, he was ruled out as a suspect. And then on March 10, 1999, a man reportedly tried to abduct two young girls, uh, a 10-year-old and an 11-year-old from a schoolyard. Police thought that an incident like this might have been connected to Mikkel's case, but the abduction was revealed to be a hoax. Again, my kid would be in so much trouble. It's a lot of kids sound like they're bored doing a lot of naughty things. So, to sum up the working theory of the crime, after the investigation was as complete as it could be, that on the evening of January 2nd, 1999, someone or someones looking to lure a child out to their car drove through the neighborhood playing music associated with ice cream trucks. Their ploy worked because McCall and Kimber had it outside for what they thought was the ice cream truck. When Kimber went home to get a jacket, the person or persons involved approached McCall. She tried to get away from them. She turned towards home. She dropped her bike. She dropped her money, and she ran. But they caught her, and they drove away before Kimber came back outside. And this is why I think that she would have had to be being watched. It all happened so fast. It just seems too much of a coincidence that someone was driving past at that exact time that she happened to be alone to take her. It just doesn't seem possible in my mind. I agree with that. I do think it was somebody who was nearby and someone who may have seen her prior. And I know we don't necessarily all agree on the only named person of interest in this case, but let's go ahead and talk about him. He's not technically, when I say a person of interest, I mean in the media and to Mikkel's family. I don't think the police have actually officially named him anything. I couldn't say anywhere that the police do think he's a viable suspect. I watched an interview where it sounded like he was definitely a person of interest, but they just don't have anything to connect him. 
Yeah, they had asked the police officers in the interview I saw, they asked them something like, is he your best lead? And they paused for a significant amount of time. And then they kind of said yes. So it it it's really hard to hi- to read police officers who are tr- debating how much to reveal. <laughs> so yeah, but it's I know they don't make everything public, but it seems in what I've read, he's the only lead. I yeah, I've seen nothing else. So let's go ahead and give him a name: D. Blaylock. He was a registered sex offender who lived just two blocks from the Biggs family, and he lived across. From Mikkel's piano teacher. He admitted to the police that he had seen her when she would go to lessons. He had convictions in three states, and while I couldn't find what those convictions were for, like specifically and in what state, the police in the interview I saw made it sound like his convictions spanned various ages rather than being specifically targeting adults or children. The family had a candlelight vigil for Mikkel, and Blaylock showed up. He started yelling at the detectives about their investigation while he was there, and he caused enough of a scene that the Biggs family remembers him, but Darren said they just kind of wrote him off as a drunk. He was later caught on a newscast talking about the importance of keeping an eye out for your neighbors while they had this block watch party after Mikkel's disappearance. Super creepy to watch that. So, being a relatively close neighbor and a registered sex offender, Blaylock was investigated. His wife said he was home in the garage the entire evening of Mikkel's disappearance. Though it didn't sound like she was saying she was in the garage with him. Or, I don't know, the layout of their house, if she could see him in the garage and she knows he didn't leave. And they're not together anymore and she has not altered this account from what I've seen. Oh, I think if she knew something, it would be a great opportunity to, for her to work the talk show circuit and sell the book. So Exactly. Especially with what we're going to talk about in a little bit. Uh, I mean, you could understand why she might want to turn him in for pretty much anything she could at that time. His home was searched and they didn't find anything. But he usually had a trailer on his property, and it was not on the property when the police arrived. It was in a storage facility nearby. And according to Mikkel's father, the trailer was not searched. The family seems they're on the Blaylock is guilty side of things, and they believe that that's where he hid Mikkel's body that first night. So back to the sketches for just a quick second. Blaylock does resemble the sketch from the girl who was grabbed prior to Mikkel's disappearance. It's scarily similar. Agreed, yeah. And we can put up a side-by-side on our Facebook page. Definitely. So about two years after Mikkel went missing, there was another brutal crime in the neighbourhood. Dee Blaylock stalked and brutally assaulted his neighbour, Susan Quinette. Unlike Michelle, Susan was an adult, and Blaylock had bothered her with unwanted advances for months. One night she came home from some errands to find him inside her house and he was hiding behind the refrigerator. Susan was raped and brutally beaten. Blaylock tried to snap Susan's neck three times and he did succeed in breaking her neck in one place. He then placed her in a chokehold until she lost consciousness. The police reported it was one of the worst beatings they had ever seen. Blaylock left Susan for dead and tried to burn her house down with pizza boxes he set ablaze on the stove. 
Susan miraculously survived the attack. In the ambulance that night, she told emergency responders that her attacker was the man who took Mikkel Biggs. She didn't say he confessed or even mentioned Mikkel during the attack. She said it was just a feeling she had. Blaylock's attack on a woman in her own home is far removed from kidnapping a child. However, it's important to know that Blaylock does have previous convictions for both child molestation and kidnapping. Although we all looked and none of us could find any details of any of these convictions. The police describe him as one of the worst types of sexual predators one who attacks across age and gender lines. Dee Blaylock is currently serving a prison sentence of 187 years in an Arizona maximum security prison in Florence. So Susan Quinnett, the woman that Blaylock raped and left for dead, is convinced that he was responsible for Mikkel's disappearance. So the Biggs family wrote to him in jail to ask for answers. And he replied to them in a letter, I need to make things right with you and your family. So, Darren and Tracy Biggs went to the maximum security facility to meet with him face to face. Mikkel's parents sat across from Blaylock with glass between them. They talked with him for an hour and a half, and he denied everything. He was offended that they accused him, because a guy like him would never hurt a child, right? However, her parents are convinced that he was lying. Darren said that he doubts enough that he won't seek physical retribution on Blaylock in the event that he's wrong but he doesn't think that he's wrong. So I want to kind of take a deeper look into Blaylock's letter. So Allie, I'm going to ask you, why would Blaylock write to the family that he needed to make things right if he didn't intend, or at least in that moment, to confess? Why do you think he wrote that letter? I think Blaylock was just looking for his 15 minutes of fame. He knew it was a high-profile case. People like that just like to mess with the family, unfortunately. I agree. Even as someone who keeps him in the solid suspect column, I think he's just kind of a bored sociopath and he wanted to mess with the family. Agreed. How many people visit him in jail? For real. Exactly. So he got a visit out of it. Yes. You know, he's never getting out of jail, so he doesn't really have a lot to lose for confessing, except, you know, his safety. Because people who hurt children famously don't get along well in prison. And if Mikkel was murdered, her murder does meet Arizona's requirement for the death penalty, based on Mikkel's age at the time. Yes. Even though, you know, inmates die of natural causes long before the state can execute them, death row is a major step down in the quality of life in the prison system. So he has nothing to gain by confessing, even if he did it. And he he does, even though he'll be in jail the rest of his life, have something to lose. The only thing to gain from confessing is he could bring the family answers and peace, but he doesn't seem like the type of guy who would care about that. Blaylock is a lot of things that we don't use that kind of language on this podcast, so I won't say what I think he is. I don't think he cares about bringing the family peace. No, I think even if he if he did it or he didn't do it, period, he was messing with the family. Exactly. Mikkel's family and the police do believe that Mikkel is dead. And this may sound odd because I think we're really used to missing kid cases of the parents really holding on to hope and that that's what gets them through. However, Mikkel's family, and I don't think that it's giving up hope, they seem... especially her mom in this interview I saw, 
seemed to be a little bit more comforted that, because imagine what Mikkel would be going through if she had been kept alive this whole time. On the fifth anniversary of Mikkel's disappearance, the family held a funeral for her with an empty casket, and they put her favorite color flowers on it, and they had a full funeral for her. The family does feel hopeful that Mikkel's remains will eventually be found and returned to them, but they also recognize their need to mourn and then take that next step. They had three younger children. They have, as parents, they have their whole lives also ahead of them. And by morning, they could then take that next step. It's just so sad. I saw in the 2020 special that Darren couldn't bring himself to enter Mikkel's room, but Tracy would always be in there. She would look through Mikkel's drawings because Mikkel wanted to be a Disney illustrator when she grew up. So she was drawing all the time. So Tracy would go through Mikkel's drawings and organize them. It brought her peace doing that. And all of this is just heartbreaking for me. It is interesting the way not only different families handle this, you know, the ones who won't have a funeral in the event their child's still alive. And then Mikkel's family who felt that was a necessary step in their process. But even within the family, her father and her mother dealt with it differently. And yes. I, I mean, I guess parents just have to do whatever works for them, like anyone who's grieving. Do you think they'll ever solve this case? No. The desert around Mesa is so vast. There are so many places she could be, and she's small. And I know that's that's grim, but I, I'm afraid that that's what's become of her. And I agree with Nina. I think that it's most likely she's in the desert, unfortunately, and I don't think she'll ever be found. I guess the one thing I'm happy, I guess, with that the family has found peace. And as much as you can accept it, I'm glad that, I'm glad that they have accepted what may have happened to her. I can't imagine. They are extremely strong people to have made the decision they have made. You know, investigators, both real ones and armchair ones, We like to look for linked cases, cases that have some similarities. Allie and I found a few, and we can't say that these are definitely linked. And to be honest, I don't think any of them are linked to Mikkel. But as I was reading them, I thought all all of these stories deserve to be told. And so if anything, talking about them just lets us boost the signal a little bit on them. We're not going to take a ton of time, but... And we'll put uh, we'll put links and photos of all these girls up on our website so you can read more about them if you're interested. Yes, and absolutely we have looked at these and I don't know, from Mikkel's case to looking at these similar cases, it's kind of gotten me thinking more about, I mean, I know the missing kid cases are really hard, but they're really important. Agreed. So the first one we're going to talk about is Brandy Myers. And Brandy was a 13-year-old girl in Phoenix, Arizona. Phoenix and Mesa are fairly close together, about a half hour apart. And she was going door-to-door soliciting funds for a school readathon, which, oh gosh, I did all the time when I was that age. Me too. Her mother described her as kind of naive, and she went missing about seven years before Mikkel, so we're talking early 90s. Her mother describing her as naive, it wouldn't be out of the question that she would go inside someone's home or get a ride. There are some conflicting reports on when exactly she went missing and from exactly where. 
While authorities were searching for Brandy, they actually found the body of a teen girl that was not Brandy. And it took nearly 20 years for this girl to be identified, and it was Shannon Ama. This story is so sad. I'm not even sure I can get through talking about it. If I sound like I'm talking fast, it's just to get through it. Yeah. Shannon was born to a 16-year-old rape victim, and she was given over to Child Protective Services voluntarily by her mother at the age of three. She was soon adopted. However, at the age of 12, her adoptive parents gave her back to the state, citing her uncontrollable behavioral issues as the reason. Having run away many, many times, Shannon disappeared completely at the age of 16. A missing persons report was not filed. Her body was only identified through the dedicated police work, attempting to identify some of the John and Jane Does in Arizona. They were able to track down Shannon's birth mother and use her DNA to identify her remains, and she has been reburied under her name. Due to the physical resemblance and proximity, there is, in my opinion, reason to believe that Brandy and Shannon are connected. I agree. There is was a suspected serial killer called the Canal Killer, who has been named as Brian Patrick Miller in the area, and he is facing charges for two early 1990s murders, and he is a strong suspect in Brandy's case. And I'm going to be honest, he kind of looks like that sketch that I said looked like Dee Blaylock. I thought that too. He could almost be Dee's, like, son. I, The receding hairline, the color, the shape of the face, they almost look like they're related. And the more I read about Brian Patrick Miller, the more I think they're going to link other cases to him. I mean, maybe not Mikkel's, maybe not even Shannon's, but the current two charges against him are not the last we're going to hear of him. So another case that I'm going to talk about briefly only because the more I read it, the more I think we might need to do a full episode on this one because it's a little bit bigger than I can do in a synopsis. So I'll just do my best. In May of 1993, Danielle Pitcher was a 14-year-old girl, and she was walking home from the store with her mother. And the store was about three miles from her home. So she had come home from church. She and her mother walked three miles, and they turned around and walked were walking the three miles home. Dogs tracked their scent from the store to about the halfway point in their walk. So it's assumed at that point they both got into a vehicle, possibly voluntarily. Someone offered them a ride home, possibly not voluntarily. Neither of them have been seen since. Danielle and her mother lived about three hours away from Mikkel, and they disappeared in a pair. It it sounds quite dissimilar from Mikkel's. And aside from having the similar coloring as Mikkel, the blondish hair, the light skin, there wasn't a lot that linked these cases. But I I couldn't leave this story out even if we decide to do a full episode on it because as I read more, I just want to bring this case to people's awareness. And then on December 19, 1994, six-year-old Esther Galaz, or Lizette as she was known, vanished outside of her family's apartment, which was next to a convenience store in Tucson, Arizona. Those that witnessed the disappearance were children playing nearby, so reports are conflicting. Lizette got into a blue car. No, actually, it was a black truck. Lizette went with a blonde woman. Regardless, the following day, a man who was walking his dogs found Lizette's body. 
She was hidden under an old mattress in a ditch only half a mile from her home. She had been sexually assaulted and murdered. And finally, three years before Mikkel went missing, on January 11, 1996, Karen Grahida, who was seven years old at the time, disappeared while playing outside of her family's home in Tucson, Arizona. Karen only lived about an hour and a half south of where the Biggses lived. She'd been out rollerblading with her sister and she was last seen heading home to return her skates so she could go back to playing something else outside. No one saw her disappear and no one heard her scream. She hasn't been seen since. It is widely believed that Karen's disappearance is linked to Lizette's as they are both Hispanic girls about the same age and they were playing outside and taken from a group of other children playing. The other thing that struck me about Karen Grijada and Lizette Galaz's cases is that they were also taken at like the same time of day as Mikkel, you know? Yes. And I'm kind of wondering, though, in these two cases, this being taken from a group of children, it's almost as though there being multiple children out there created a shield. A distraction type a of distraction, thing? A distraction where nobody was really yes. watching when one kid got lured around the corner and then snatched. And it's it's almost overwhelming thought to me because I always feel like my children are safer in groups. And statistically, they are safer in groups. But at the same time, I hear these stories and, I mean, oh, just predators know what they're doing. And look, Mikkel doesn't fit the demographic She's fair-skinned, she's fair-haired, and a few years older than Karen and Lizette. And I don't know if any of these cases are related to Mikkel's, but these cities aren't all that far away from each other. All of these abductions are eerily similar to me, with Karen the abductor watched her while she was playing with her sister outside, taking Karen as soon as she was by herself. It was the same with Lizette and the same with Brandy. And we see the same thing with Mikkel. I mean, we all know that a predator's type isn't a hard and fast rule. Sometimes it's more of a matter of opportunity. So I'm going to run through Mikkel's stats very quickly and then also give you the contact information if anyone out there does know anything. Mikkel was an 11-year-old Caucasian girl. She was 4'8 and 65 pounds. She had hazel eyes. Her hair was blonde and she was growing out a perm. She has a few small flat moles on the left side of her neck. She was last seen wearing a red t-shirt, bell-bottom blue jeans with embroidered seams at the side of each leg, and plain white canvas shoes. Her ears are pierced, but it's unknown if she was wearing earrings at the time. If you have any information about the disappearance of Mikkel Biggs, call the Mesa, Arizona Police Department at 480 644-2211. This information will be on our website and Facebook, along with information about and links to all these cases. So do you have any final thoughts on this case? I'm not sold that Blaylock did it. Blaylock strikes me as a Bond villain, not someone who kidnapped Mikkel and did away with her. I also think that if he had... There would have been evidence in his trailer or in his garage. They would have found something or at the storage place. And I think there was more than one person involved. I think someone grabbed her and someone else drove. Yeah, Blaylock doesn't strike me as someone who would be smart enough to hide everything 
for a length of time. I think if he had was involved, they would have found something. I lean a little bit more than you two in the maybe Blaylock did it, but I do think that if this case is ever solved, it's really going to be like Jacob Wetterling, where they just happen to catch the person who did it and they confess. And I also find it hard to believe. I think Mikkel's abductor has committed similar crimes to what he did to Mikkel before he took her, and he probably has committed similar crimes since. I believe that they are estranged to Mikkel because of how her bike was found. To me, it seems like she was running away from the car when it pulled up to get her. She she knew she was in danger. But, you know, they've got 10,000 leads and tips in the case file. I think the key to the case is in that case file somewhere. Yes, absolutely. There may be someone that they did interview that they are looking at, or maybe they interviewed and just put in a maybe pile that will turn out to be the person or two people involved in this. Because when I said that Blaylock is the only lead they've made public, we know with part of their investigations, if they have someone in mind, they don't have the evidence, they tend to keep that under their hat for when they do have enough evidence. Play the cards close to the vest. Well, thank you, guys. It was really great to have another voice on the podcast, and we appreciate your willingness. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed researching this, and uh, I love the setup that you have, and thank you for including me. So we encourage everyone to go check out the Already Gone podcast. It is in iTunes, Facebook pages, Twitter, all of that. But if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at insightfulpod at gmail.com. Facebook is Insight Pod. We have great discussions under each episode that we link. We've been putting out extra articles that we found. And speaking of extra articles, Allie has launched a new website for us. Yes, www.insightpod.com. There's articles there with audio you can listen to and sort of footage you can watch. We're still building up these true crime articles because I'm me. We might have some history articles thrown in there. We are writing those in between writing our weekly scripts. So stay tuned over the next few weeks as we roll out some more of those articles. You can tweet at me at InsightfulPod or you can Instagram Allie at InsightPod. So we look forward to seeing everybody next week. Thanks. Bye.